Even though Evil and Anchors didn't play a lot of villains, we're opening up episode 178 of Monster Kid Radio with the song The Girl in Black. It's from the band Vacations. It's on their album Nightmare Beach. You can find them over at vacationsga.bandcamp.com or you can follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. That's the website for this podcast monster kid radio where we celebrate the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear and this month we're celebrating women in horror so we're looking at women who contributed to classic monster movies classic horror movies and this time around as i mentioned evelyn anchors is the topic on the podcast i'm your host writer producer Derek m cook welcome to the show and welcome back for our continued conversation with author paul mccomas about evil and anchors now we already talked a little bit with paul in the last episode of monster kid radio came out a couple of days ago if you haven't heard it yet that's okay you can go back and listen to it well now you can just hit pause and go check it out or you can go back to it or you can just skip ahead and listen to this episode of the podcast although i don't know why you'd want to do that because evil and anchors i mean she's worthy of at least two three four you know i can do a whole month on evil and anchors we're going to try to get the rest of it in this time around on this episode. Also on this episode of Monster Kid Radio, we have a short conversation with author Gregory William Mank. Now, I did meet him at last summer's Monster Bash, June 2014. Did a little interview with him then, and I played that on a previous episode of Monster Kid Radio, but I asked him specifically about Evelyn Anchors because I figured, you know, we'd do an episode based on her, and I wanted to save that for this time around. So you're going to get Gregory William Mank on Evelyn, you're going to get me and Paul McComas on Evelyn. But before all that, I want to tell you about our website, monsterkidradio.net. It's where you're going to find everything you need to know about the podcast between episodes. From here, you're going to find links to everything that's important to the show, like our live 365 internet radio station. This is where you can tune in for free to our live 365 radio setup and listen to music and trailers from classic monster movies. This is the kind of stuff that I listen to when I'm not working on a podcast. I love this stuff, and I hope you guys and gals dig it too. We also have a link to our Amazon store where people can buy things through Amazon, through us. We get like a penny or two whenever you buy something through the Amazon store. We have a link to every song that's appeared here on the show in the past and links to the artist's website so you can go check it out for yourself. We also have our Patreon page where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and support us that way. And we have a link to our Facebook group where you can join the group and get involved in conversations between between episodes with listeners of Monster Kid Radio and even take part in the polls that I set up. I have a new poll going. I think I've asked this question in the past before, but it's a favorite topic of mine to think about. So I just posted a new poll asking you what your favorite public domain monster movies are. There are a lot of them and Facebook lets you pick more than one whenever you set up a poll. So go join the group and pick your favorites. As of this recording, House on Haunted Hill is in the number one spot, but there are so many great public domain horror movies out there. I'd like to see them all get represented and I'd like to hear your input on what your favorite ones are. Yeah, it's a little self-serving. I've got some projects coming up in the future that might involve some public domain properties, but it's also still fun just to kind of hash this stuff out. You can also find our contact information on monsterkidradio.net. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And our voicemail line, which is 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. Here's why I'm stressing this. Next week is the last week in Women in Horror Month. So... I would like to include your feedback regarding your favorite women who have participated in front of or behind the camera in classic monster movie cinema. 
I want to hear what you guys and gals have to say. So email me a WAV file or an MP3 file or call into the voicemail line and leave a voicemail, and I'll include your thoughts next week on Monster Kid Radio. That's next week. This week, it's Evil and Anchors. We're going to go ahead and listen to Gregory William Make, take a short break, and then dive into the rest of our conversation with author Paul McComas right about now. I do want to ask you one other question. I see this book here, Women in Horror Films, 1940s. I personally am a huge Evil and Anchors fan. Mm. Do you have anything you can share about Evelyn for our listeners, for those who might not know who she is? Oh, well, first of all, I'm very impressed that you knew how to pronounce her name Evelyn because <laughs> everybody says Evelyn Anchors, but she was. She was Evelyn Anchors. Uh, beautiful, beautiful lady and uh, a, a great favorite of mine as well. I think she was, she was a super actress, uh, a very beautiful woman. And uh, in fact, her daughter, Dee, was a guest at Monster Bash some, some years ago, about oh, 10 years wow. ago, uh, came and talked about, uh, about her mom. And even shows some home movies, you know, of of them. Uh, she was a, a very interesting lady. Uh, unfortunately, she was one of those actresses who never really got a break, the kind of break, the kind of career break that an actress needed in Hollywood, you know, to really make it big at that time. And eventually, she became rather disenchanted with her own career and kind of. Uh, unhappy about the whole business and never really felt that she had done anything, you know, particularly noteworthy. Um, and so, uh, which is a shame because I think so many of the horror fans, you know, really exalt her, you know, as, as, as you do and I do. Uh, and she had incredible charm, incredible poise, uh, magnificent scream. And, um, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. And of course she was, um, uh, she was kind of at the mercy of Lon Chaney Jr. in, in those years at, at Universal, who was kind of hard on her. But he, she was a, she was a neat lady and a real favorite of mine. And I think, uh, uh, you know, a really remarkable career. Too bad she didn't go more, uh, in her career as into stardom, but certainly what she did, we all remember and cherish very much. Eternal punishment for anyone who opens this casket. The mummy. Is it dead or alive? Human or inhuman? You'll know. You'll see. You'll feel the awful, creeping, crawling terror that stands your hair on end and brings a scream to your lips. There's nothing on earth like the mummy. You will not remember what I show you now, and yet I shall awaken memories of love and crime and death. Now I know his horrible plan. He is going to kill her and make her a living mummy like himself. Hello, Christopher. What insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? (laughs) People are always telling me that's illegal. Uh Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look, Rescue from Gilligan's Island. Well, let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, 
radio shows, and books available. Yeah, but there are so many. I wish there was a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time. Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. <laughs> oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. Once a month, we pick something from archive.org and review and discuss it. <laughs> that sure is nice of us. <laughs> sure. Well, why don't you click over to orphan-entertainment.jonja.net and remind yourself a little more about the show. <laughs> Will do. So let's see. That's orphan-entertainment.jonja.net. Hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie sometime? Mm-hmm. We'll see, Christopher. We'll see. movies were made. Adventure to make you wonder if it's true while your eyes convince you that it is. Truly the thrill of thrills. Don't miss it this time. Fay Ray, and you know, I want to go back to Anchors being a scream queen, being called the queen of scream, kind of right. replacing Fay Ray as she was getting older, and they needed a another Fay Ray. At one point, she said she was being referred to as the poor man's Fay Ray uh, uh, on set, and you know it's kind uh, of like a little dig, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, she also relays a story that she ran into an elderly extra once on the lot, and this woman was the person who dubbed all the screams. Uh, Except for anchors, right? That's right. In anchors, she apologized for putting her out of work. It's like, no, 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 you gave my throat a break. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, anchors could scream. <laughs> yeah, she screams. They give her an opportunity to scream in nearly all of the Universal thrillers, mm-hmm. monster or otherwise. You mentioned the Sherlock Holmes films she yeah. did, which are interesting because she plays diametrically opposed characters. <laughs> yeah. Voice of Terror. She's this very lovable. Cockney bar girl with a heart of gold who, as I recall, is martyred for the Allied cause against the Nazis. And then in The Pearl of Death, she's a very bright and complex villainess. You'd have to be to go up against Holmes. True. And, and she proves herself uh, up to the challenge. Pearl of Death. I just watched these two movies for the first time last week. Yeah. And I prefer Pearl of Death over the other one. And again, I think it might be because she got to get in touch with a little bit of darkness. You know, she's she's not the villainess the way she is in Weird Woman, but she's still right. kind of on the other side of the law. And Yeah, she's out of control in Weird Woman. Yeah. Ultimately, she, she loses her mind. Yeah. 
But in Pearl of Dusk, she gets to be more than just the one character because the one character is also going into disguise and yeah. trying to, you know, face off against Holmes. And she throws on an Irish accent in one scene, right. and it's and it right. sounds really kind of off, but nobody cared because everybody told her, well, you're not really Irish. You're just pretending to be Irish. So if it doesn't <laughs> ring true, it's okay. It fits the movie. But still, I mean, that scene's one of my favorite scenes in the whole film is when she goes yeah. off. So Yeah, she's playing a female Holmes just like another actress, Gil Sundergaard, did in uh, Sherlock Holmes and the Spider-Woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always fun to see uh, Holmes up against a female rival because uh, there's this wonderful sexual undercurrent to the transaction. You get the sense that he could never really be happy with a normal woman, that he would have to find essentially a female Moriarty, <laughs> a rival. Yeah. Uh, anyone else would be too boring for him. Yeah. Now, she does relay a story about being uh, kind of wolfed up by Nigel Bruce on the Sherlock Holmes films, <laughs> that he was right. very, uh, oh, put his arm around her, that sort of thing, until her husband came to visit the set. <laughs> <laughs> And he would stay in the corner and keep to himself. Strapping young Richard Denning. Yeah. Yeah. And this was one of the great Hollywood love affairs from all accounts. Mm -hmm. Evelyn was engaged to someone else when she met Denning um, and broke the engagement to marry Denning, but then they stayed together for the remainder of her life. That's something else that she writes about is how proud she is that, you know, they've had a very successful life together and how much she loves her husband. And I think that's commendable because you see in Holly, I mean, you hear the stories about Hollywood relationships and romances and they never last. Right. It was clear that she was in love with her man and she gave up the career and she became the housewife and she was totally okay with that. Yeah. And, and it was very, it made her happy and you know, good for her. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't know that she was all that uh, sold on the career to start True. to start with. But uh, I also don't know how much stock to put in those stories. I think that Denning may have exaggerated in order to sure. pay tribute to the sacrifices that his his wife had made. I guess I feel, watching some of these performances, that she must have been enjoying it at least on some level mm-hmm. because she's just so good. You wouldn't have a career today that we still talk about, monster movie or otherwise, if you didn't enjoy your job. I mean, it's evident. It comes through on screen that she's having a good time. Even with somebody like Lon Chaney Jr., who she didn't get along with, she still is working and just working it for us to enjoy now. She left quite a legacy for it. I think that there must have been some level of respect between the two of them, even mm-hmm. if they didn't care for each other on a personal level. And I, I think some recognition on, on the part of each that there was this a truly awesome chemistry in the original Wolfman, and that they were good for each other in that sense. It worked. He was Universal's top sell as a as a horror film star during that era, mm-hmm. and she was the go-to gal for uh, a female lead in those films. Yep. Probably Cheney didn't mind the fact that both the Wolfman and Ghost of Frankenstein, uh, the scripts called for him to drop her on the floor. Or, or on the ground, as the case may be. <laughs> you could uh, do a, a montage, I suppose, of uh, the abuse that she suffered on screen at his oh, hands. Yeah. There's also real terror in her scene with the Wolfman at the end of, mm-hmm. of that movie. Usually when a female character faints, it, it seems kind of ludicrous, but what precedes it in the graveyard, in the mist... Is it a graveyard or is it just moors? Am I, I imagining think it's just that? moors, yeah. Yeah. What happens in the moors, in the fog, in the seconds leading up to her losing consciousness, uh, I, I think 
you'd be hard pressed to keep your wits about you and stay conscious. Yep. Find her performances extremely plausible. Mm-hmm. The scripts may not be, but her reactions are. Sure, sure. Now, she's known for the Universal uh, films with us, but I almost feel like that almost didn't happen. That her first right. gig, her first role was going to be with 20th Century Fox, and That's right. it was a non-horror film, and things just didn't work out. And Thank goodness. Yeah, no <laughs> kidding, right? And then she went over to Universal and did Hold That Ghost with Abbott and Costello with another creature connection with Richard Carlson being in the film. Um, <laughs> right, and another flirt on, on set mm-hmm. in, yeah. in Lou Costello. Oh, yeah. man. <laughs> 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 she she makes comments that she stayed in the corner quite a bit because it meant nobody could sneak up behind her. <laughs> yeah, rolling hands. Exactly. exactly. Her caboose was not safe in that station. Oh, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. And, and thankfully for us, <laughs> this led to her association with the Universal Pictures, the monster films, the mystery films, and, and she's just amazing. I mean, I, I know this conversation has kind of evolved into – Oh, isn't she great? Yeah, she's great. But I think with <laughs> well, good, she's fantastic. I'd like to try and break it down into why. Okay. You know, and some of this will be a review of things we've already said. But right. starting with the fact that she was 5'8", which, you know, by the way, was a lot taller back then. Yes. This is many decades ago at this point. And, yeah, statuesque is not out of uh, – that, that's, that's not out of line. You put two and a half or three-inch heels on her, as she generally did, and, and she's – pretty close to six feet at that point, wearing these amazing gowns. You notice even when she's playing the uh, daughter of an antiques uh, salesman, <laughs> she's in a different dress in every scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, many of the movies had those hats, too. So she's striking to look at, a, mm-hmm. a, a beautiful blonde uh, with an accent that often seems exotically placed somewhere between America and England. <laughs> She is a great reactive actor in terms of holding the screen, even when she's not talking, even when she's not the focus of it. There is a scene in Ghost of Frankenstein where she's realizing one of the difficult truths that that her character Elsa has to face, and she sort of pulls back away from the other characters in the scene and turns around and starts to walk away from the camera. <laughs> but you're watching her leap, even though she's taking herself out of the foreground and even a little bit out of focus, your eyes stay with her yes. as the other characters talk. And it's not just because she's a bombshell. It's also because she knows how to hold a scene. Mm-hmm. Very smart. Yeah. The chemistry that she develops with the actors around her uh, in Weird Woman, it, it's not just the sparks that fly between her and Chaney as her ex but also the relationship between anchors and the character played by Elizabeth Russell, who becomes a pawn yes. um, mm-hmm. of, of Anchors' character, Elena, and then later Cheney, uh, Cheney's character kind of uh, forces Russell's character to, to see the truth, and instead of uh, the two women plotting against uh, Cheney and his bride, it becomes uh, Cheney and, and uh, Russell's character plotting against Anchors' character. Mm-hmm. There's some neat reversals in that movie, including, as I mentioned, what the to whom the title refers. And uh, <laughs> the audience's loyalty, I think, uh, switches over the course of the film. I mean, sometimes the films suffer, I feel like, when she was so good 
and she could hold the audience's attention so much, sometimes to the detriment of the movie she's in itself. I just mm-hmm. watched The Invisible Man's Revenge this morning, yeah. and yeah. she's in the very beginning of that, and then she's off screen for so long, I felt myself getting anxious, like, bring back her character. I want to see right. Julie again, you know? That's the name right. of the character and she played. She, yeah, that's why she's off screen and, and not for turning invisible, by the way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the lead is also off screen, but for a different reason. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it would have been interesting if she'd played the uh, the invisible woman in the movie that bore that name, because uh, yeah. uh, what's required of an actor is to uh, hold a movie without being on screen, just through, uh, through voice. And Claude Rains pulled it off uh, yes. explicitly in the original Invisible Man. And something tells me that had anchors appeared in uh, The Invisible Woman, she would have pulled it off, too. Of course, that film was comedy, uh, The Invisible Woman. True. Um, but uh, anyway, that's a what-if story, I suppose. It is. Well, she had the voice. I mean, she had a radio show at one point yeah. of, you know, as, as a singer. That's right. And she'd bring uh, guests on and mm-hmm. interview them and duet with them. Yeah, but they didn't let her sing in the Mad Ghoul, which is <laughs> right. so unfortunate. Up, after after working on it for weeks, uh, yeah, didn't give her the chance to sing it. Yeah, would have made the movie more fun. I think I like the Mad Ghoul, but I mean to hear her sing would have been nice. I think I don't think yeah. I've ever heard her sing in anything. I don't know if there's any recordings or anything like that out there. Yeah, Netflix will uh, will put you in touch. I think there was at least one film where she sang. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that it was mentioned by uh, Gregory William Mank and his. Women in Horror films, the 40s. I can't recall what the film was off the top of my head. You know, I'm going to go ahead and, and be a little controversial here. And okay. say I consider, in large part, not solely, but in large part, because of Anchor's performance, I consider the original Wolfman to be ultimately a, a, a more enjoyable and possibly even a better film than the original Dracula or the original Frankenstein. Wow. Okay. I find myself watching it more than I do either of the other two. Dracula is a, a fine movie, um, but it's also a fairly early sound film, and I, I think it's a little stagey at times, a little theatrical at times. You won't get any argument out of me on that one. Yeah. It's incredibly stagey. So as cinema, I think it suffers. And I also think that Helen Chandler, while hypnotic, is kind of the other. She's not terribly relatable in the way that Anchors is as Glenn Conliffe. And, and as for the original Frankenstein, for me, it's always been dwarfed by the first sequel. And, and again, it's early sound cinema where they're still kind of figuring things out. And if you grade it on a curve, then yeah, I think you can call uh, that film a masterpiece. But if you don't grade it on a curve that takes into account that sound cinema was not very old, and just look at the accomplishments in the Wolfman, after a dozen years of sound cinema, when people are really figuring out how to how to get the best punch out of out of the medium. I see where you're coming from, though, with Dracula specifically. I mean, Todd Browning being the director, mm-hmm. with a lot of silence in his background. You know, how do you use sound if you're not really a sound film guy? And it is an early film, so there are some great shots where they're moving the camera around, but. Not when there's a lot of dialogue happening, because you can't move that big clunky camera around and keep it quiet and keep the microphone out of sight. Yeah. Once the Wolfman comes along and they've gotten used to how the technology works and has found a way to get great cinema out of the technology, yeah. the Wolfman is a more dynamic film. It is, and the characterizations are yes. more realistic. More realistic. The fiancé in the original Frankenstein is a bit histrionic. Uh, it's really more of a theatrical performance. 
I think by the 40s, maybe in part because, you know, think about it, uh, as women moved into the workforce during the Rosie the Riveter era. That's a good point. You're starting to see female characters that are less stereotypical, Mm -hmm. less uh, melodramatic, more relatable to women and men. And Glenn Conliffe is a terrific character. I would have loved to see a movie about the daughter of the antique store owner, <laughs> you know, that <laughs> <laughs> just, it wasn't necessarily a monster movie. It was just sort of about her life and Lon Welly and trying to decide whether to marry uh, the gatekeeper of Talbot Estate. I, I think that movie would probably work. That really um, could be a fun film. Again, we're <laughs> talking about fantasy films here, but I mean, we're, we're imagining what if, but that would be an right. interesting movie to watch. I'd watch that. <laughs> yeah, this from the co-author of... Uh, Fit for a Frankenstein, which uh, <laughs> <laughs> fills in the gap in a dissolve within Ghost to Frankenstein. There you go. Um, I'm, I'm getting a little carried away, maybe, in in uh, these speculations. But no, I guess what I'm saying is that some of these characters, and especially some of, some of these supporting characters, and especially some of these female supporting characters in the Universal films, they serve roles within the movies, but are not particularly engaging plausible, likable, on their own. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you can say that about Gwen Conliffe, Elsa Frankenstein, or, or other characters that anchors played. Part of that is probably because they're written with more depth, and part of it is certainly because of the likability, the intelligence, the charm, and the charisma that anchors consistently brought to those roles. I think you just spoke some truth right there, sir. Yeah. I, I agree with you. Uh, a lot of these characters, especially we're talking the 40s now because that's when the Wolfman came out. In the 40s and into the 50s, a lot of the women characters are there to serve roles and just kind of push the plot along or get pushed around by the plot. There's right. not a lot to really hang on to and dig into as a, as a real person, as a character. Right. Whereas right. Anchor's characters, especially at the beginning of her Universal run with like the Wolfman, provides the hooks for the characters to get into. I don't mm-hmm. think anybody intended for the female lead who doesn't get nearly as high enough billing as she should to be the point of view character in The Wolfman. Mm-hmm. But she is. Yeah, she is. Interestingly, I think Anchors was the perfect actress for that period mm-hmm. when women are filling in some of the gaps in our culture and, and our uh, working world because men are, are, have gone off to war. You get to the 1950s and characters like Julie Adams played in, in Creature from the Black Lagoon, <sighs> it's almost like we're going <laughs> backward. I mean, she's lovely and she yeah. is a professional woman, but to me, she doesn't seem to have the agency that is given to, uh, well, the, the anchors claims to some extent in, in, in some of her portrayals, even though it's a more recent film, it, it reflects uh, the reactionary uh, uh, 1950s uh, and, and society's thrust to get women mm-hmm. out of the workplace now that the men are home and to idealize the the homemaker and housewife and mother. Yeah, I mean, I love Creature. Everybody knows it. I, I don't hide that at all. And I love my Julie Adams. But, yeah. you know, there there is that issue, especially as that movie continues. The movie starts out with a strong female character. With yes, her. it does. You know, yes, why haven't does. you gotten married? Well, he can't afford me yet. I mean, there's right. this real strong kind of woman. But as the movie continues, right. she kind of devolves into... The screamer and she does not participate in her own rescue. Yes, 
she meets Prince Charming, and many films of that era, many science fiction and horror films of that era, the sort of lesson learned by the professional woman at the end is, what was I thinking being a, uh, a marine biologist or a photographer or an ace reporter or whatever it may happen to be, now that I've had a close call with the monster and been rescued by this hunky man, uh, I've learned my lesson. And now often the last line before the fade out is something along the lines of, uh, you know, well, there's a different kind of biology I'm interested in now. (laughs) 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 Reproducing with you being the subtext. There are a lot of movies like that, um, Mm -hmm. from the killer shrews to uh, (laughs) (laughs) right on down the line. So uh, with anchors, you always get the sense that, yeah, she might want to settle down with Larry Talbot or the gamekeeper or the Ralph Bellamy character in Ghost of Frankenstein or whoever it might be, but she's never going to give away her intelligence uh, or or her ability to directly impact the events that are taking place. That makes perfect sense. I agree with you. She never feels like she's going to give up herself. She, right. She's going to bring herself to the table, but she's not going to give herself away. She's always going to be part of whatever relationship she chooses to be part of. Right. And she's always she going goes to, to Frankenstein. She's going to take responsibility for her father. Exactly. As he begins to lose it, she's going to take responsibility for Cloistine, mm-hmm. the little girl who's been brought onto the premises. She's going to make damn well sure that nothing happens to that little girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the original Wolfman, uh, she may be warned away by uh, her father, and she may be warned away by Maleva, come with me, you know, into the wagon. And she says, I'm trying to find Larry. And Maleva says, what I'm afraid of is that he's going to find you. Mm-hmm. And she runs from that wagon. You know, if there's any safe place to be at that moment, it's probably with Maleva. And, and I think Gwen knows that. But there's something more important to her than safety. Mm-hmm. It's also the reason that she follows after characters in The Ghost of Frankenstein when she'd be safer keeping her distance. You know, she's courageous. That courage, you don't necessarily see it in, in female characters in the 30s horror films, that willfulness and courage. Yeah, it, yeah. And, and I feel like sometimes you don't even see that now. Um, right. You know, and, and right. we've talked about, or I've, I've talked about it here on the show, that unfortunately the monster movie genre, the horror movie genre, speculative fiction, it's getting better, but still... Not enough strong female characters out there, and I, I wonder... You mostly see it in dystopian films. That's yeah. where you're seeing the strong female characters. That's true. Hunger Games and Divergent. You're seeing some strong heroines there. Yeah. I think the slasher uh, genre was a step backwards for strong female characters, although Jamie Lee Curtis um, had some agency in Halloween. Mm-hmm. Kind of the better the movie, the more likely it is to have had female characters with some agency. You know, I, I am a feminist. I'm an unabashed feminist. I, sure. And I think it's kind of more important at this point in our cultural evolution for men to claim that mantle than for women to. It never meant female supremacy. All it ever meant was equal abilities, equal rights, and equal opportunities. And a lot of these movies do lend themselves to a feminist interpretation. Mm-hmm. The problem becomes when that's the only interpretation that that you're giving to them. A movie like The Wolfman actually does have uh, an element of that in it, but it's not what the film is mostly about. The film is enriched, I think, by considering the agency of of the female character and how it compares to that of uh, characters uh, from from a decade before. Mm -hmm. You know, I haven't mentioned Zita Johan, lead actress in The Mummy. 
Right. Because to me, she is so exoticized that she's utterly unrelatable. She falls under the spell because of her ethnicity, because of her ancestry, I guess, and becomes herself a kind of a supernatural character for much of the film. That's a tangent, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I haven't talked about the the first mummy film here on the show, so you know I'll, I'll take it. I love my mummy movies. I'll take it. <laughs> well, of course, Taney did a bunch of mummy movies. Evelyn was not in any of them. Right. I'm not sure why, given that she at the very same time was co-starring with Cheney in a lot of other films. That's a good point. Yeah, I mean, it's not like she wasn't under contract at the time. She was right. there. She was on the lot. Yeah. She might have had some other projects going on. I don't know. I'd have to look at the timeline actually. Now that I think about it. Yeah. Huh. Now, she never got top billing until the, one of the very last films she did, a Western, uh, The Texan mm-hmm. Meets Calamity Jane, which I've not seen. Right. She plays Calamity Jane. Have you seen it? Oh, ages ago on yeah. UHF, I believe I saw that, Yeah, along with, along with her Tarzan film. Yeah. You know, it, it wasn't just monster movies. And sure, she did some straight dramas and a couple of comedies. But alongside the monster movies, I think you have to place the thrillers. Mm-hmm. The mystery movies, the Sherlock Holmeses, mm-hmm. the Tarzan film that has a fantasy element to it. And if, if we're generous, we can say that she was not just the queen of the screamers, but the queen of 1940s genre work, horror plus. Horror plus, know? I like it. Yeah, yeah. The cinema of the fantastic, maybe you could there say. There we go. Yeah. No, she did quite a bit. She wasn't just somebody who hung out with the Wolfman. I mean, she did, you, know, you mentioned the Sherlock Holmes movies. She did the Tarzan film. I mean, we talked about Black Beauty at the very, very beginning of this. Mm-hmm. You know, she was a well-rounded actress. Yeah. But given the nature of fandom, I suppose, this is what she's known for now, at least in our circles. So. Yeah. And given the way the studio system worked. True. There would have been a lot more roles available to her and more uh, eclectic roles, I I imagine, if she'd been able to studio hop like uh, actors do today and, and have done for the past generation plus. Past she had a couple close calls with, uh, like, MGM wanted to use her in Gaslight, right? but that didn't work out, which is unfortunate because the part that she would have played ended up being played by, I believe it was Angela Lansbury, right? who got an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the same thing happened with Goodbye Mr. Chips. She was supposed to be in right. that, but it didn't work out. Yeah, I think... Pretty much any actor of the contract era has those horror stories to tell. Yeah. Yeah. And then again, we were spared Ronald Reagan in Casablanca. Oh, man. You know that, right? That's not a what if I like to think about. (laughs) He was supposed to play Rick Blaine. And uh, would would Humphrey Bogart have therefore become president? I don't think so. That's not the way that works. I don't think so either. Although, (laughs) okay, that might be an interesting what if to explore. (laughs) (laughs) Right, if they'd switched places in their career tracks. Yeah, well, we would have had a better presidency, but a worse movie. I don't think it would have been the classic film that it that Priorities, it man. Be. Priorities. <laughs> That's right. Well, I think I know the answer, and I think listeners who are paying attention know the answer. Our favorite Anchors film is, is The Wolfman, right? It is The Wolfman, yeah. absolutely. I would uh, place Weird Woman and Ghost of Frankenstein in a, in a tie for the silver. They're both so good. Yeah, and I really yeah. liked her in Pearl of Death. I just yeah. I love that that spunky kind of criminal character, not quite mastermind level, but trying to get there. Yeah. I really aspiring. do like Aspiring. That's right. The aspiring criminal genius. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> She's almost a match for Holmes, but not quite. And she gets um, to have some screen time with Rondo Hatton in that. So There you go. That's right. 
<laughs> right? The object of his of his desires, along with everyone else's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we all monster kids had had and have a huge crush on Evelyn. She kept popping up uh, next to our favorite monsters and often in their clutches. Never in the clutches of Count Alucard, as I said, they didn't share a scene. But uh, nonetheless, she was in a Dracula movie. It counts. Uh, yeah, yeah. It counts. And <laughs> we've, we've talked about Son of Dracula on the show, and we both yes. really enjoy the movie. It's underrated, I think, so. It is. There's a nice chemistry, too, between the two sisters, uh, anchors yeah. of the Yeah. Uh, representing really day and night, good and evil, black and white, mm-hmm. a morbid uh, interest in death and the past, everything that the plantation uh, represents versus anchors very much a, a woman of her era in that movie, as, as she generally was. Mm-hmm. To me, she represents... What does Evelyn Anchors finally represent? She represents hope and determination, courage, and romantic love. The performances are very romantic. Mm-hmm. You know, just as Larry Talbot falls in love with her, I think we all do. And I think that's a good note to end on there. Uh, yeah. If people haven't seen anything yeah. outside of The Wolfman with Evelyn Anchors, you're doing yourself a disservice. You need to watch more of her films. Not just the monster stuff. Go check out some of her other work, too. But but watch the monster stuff and watch that. It's important. <laughs> All right. Well, Paul, I want to thank you for joining us here on Monster Kid Radio to talk about one of our favorite actresses. People can find you at paulmccomas.com, right? Yes, they can. And there they can find information on uh, my two genre books to date, which are uh, the aforementioned Fit for a Frankenstein, uh, where Greg Starrett and I imagine basically a new movie's worth of plot within the uh, Timeline of the movie Ghost of Frankenstein. So our novel, in a sense, stars Bella Lugosi and Chaney as the monster, uh, along with a couple of other characters. And I really enjoyed it. Highly recommended. Thank you. Thank you. Evelyn Anchors could not have portrayed the cheesecake and fit for a Frankenstein. <laughs> uh, Gretel Hauptschmidt yeah. could not have played her because she's she's a teenager. The character's a teenager. But my other genre book is unforgettable. That's not me reviewing it. That's me telling you the title. <laughs> my other genre book is called Unforgettable, Harrowing Futures, Horrors, and Dark Humor. And those books have won a couple of prizes, and uh, they make for some fun reading and good gifts. So go to my website, check out the reviews, and maybe order a copy. There you go. And, Paul, we're going to have you on the show again. I think we definitely need to do the Inner Sanctum films. we got to talk yeah. about them. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love that sounds to. like a plan. We'll do that sometime this okay. year, maybe. So we'll make that happen. Okay. If I can get out there to Oregon like I've been planning to do, we'll do it in person. That would be fantastic. I'd love to sit down with a cup of coffee and one of my favorite authors and guests on Monster Kid Radio and just chatting about monster movies and who knows what else. Thank you, sir. I look forward to it. Sounds great. Good luck with the audiobook. Thank you. Good luck with Monster Kid Radio. And how could we close this show except with a scream? <laughs> and that's where you put in yeah. an anchor's scream. Yeah. I couldn't right? do it justice. So we'll, yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll let her do it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> fantastic. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> PaulMcComas.com is where you're going to find everything you need to know about what Paul's doing. And I'm sure when he releases a new book, he's going to talk about it there, the tours that he's doing, the projects he's got going on. Paul's a busy guy, and I am so thrilled that he's got all these 
exciting projects ahead of him because it means there's going to be more Paul McComas goodness in the world. We're definitely going to try to have him on the show in the future. I think Inner Sanctum is something that we really, really need to address. He's the biggest Lon Chaney Jr. fan I know. I wouldn't want to talk about Inner Sanctum with anybody other than, okay, that's not true. I'd want to talk about Inner Sanctum with everybody, but I got to have him back on to talk about Inner Sanctum down the line. And if something else, I'm sure we'll come up with something to have Paul on the show next week on monster kid radio. Like I said, I'd like to include your feedback, your opinions about your favorite women in horror from the classic monster movie era. Also, our guest next week is another author by the name of Jonathan Malcolm Lampley. He's the author behind Women in the Horror Films of Vincent Price. This book came out in 2010 from McFarland, and we had a conversation about the book, the women who have appeared in the films, and a few other things here and there. It was a really cool conversation. I'm going to have that next week on Monster Kid Radio, so you're going to have to come back for that. In the meantime, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 Unported License, except for the song The Girl in Black. That belongs to the band Vacations. It's on their album Nightmare Beach. You can find them at vacationsga.bandcamp.com. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Talk to everyone. Oh, you know what? Real quick shout out to listener Nicholas Hatcher. Just launched his own podcast covering nothing but the films of Bela Lugosi. Episode one has already dropped. I've listened to it. I've enjoyed the heck out of it. And he's already announced on Facebook that episode two is coming along shortly. The name of his podcast is Vampire Over Hollywood, the Bela Lugosi podcast. Look him up on Facebook or go to lugosipodcast.blogspot.com. Okay, now I'm out. Talk to everybody next week.